Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. If you're looking for retro commercials from the 50s all the way up to the 90s and possibly some points beyond in the future, turn to Dave's Archives, also home to the TGIF live stream on Friday nights. Go to davesarchives.com. By Retro Cirque on YouTube, home to the off-duty mind players and all those off-air commercials that he likes to put up so much from the 80s and 90s. Go to YouTube and type in Retro Cirque, spelt with a Q at the end. And by the continuing financial support of our patrons at patreon.com slash telehealthpodcast, including Mr. Cheeseball, Drew Drewski Mitchell, Rick Kalaki Jr., Robert Marquez, Chris Michaud, Meredith Morrissey, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. In 1983, NBC was walking a tightrope between redemption and oblivion. You can NBC there, but you got to be there. Yeah. After years of losing money to one mistake after another, the so-called Be There season that the network came up with was meant to prove every critic, viewer, and skeptic that a comeback was in its grasp. As we've proven last time, such a comeback was not to be in the stars for that season. Of course, if you could rely on one thing among underdogs, it's the fact that they never give up no matter how much their back is against the wall. All the network needed to dust themselves off once and for all was a proven hitmaker who had helped bring success to both NBC and the other two networks that he worked for. And everything might just look up. No, not him. And besides, he already had a show on the network that year anyway, and look how well that turned out. This is not just the tale of an infamous bomb that would negatively put the exclamation mark on NBC's 1983 season, but rather the tale of a man who felt that he had the Midas touch, when in actuality, the touch was gold-plated. Man, oh man, oh man. Tomorrow night, Professor Jonathan Chase will thrill America as Manimal, a different breed of crime fighter. Sometimes a snake. Sometimes a charmer. I was a real pussycat. Animal premiering right after Mr. Smith tomorrow. Abandon all remote controls. Ye who enter here. This is Tele-Hell. This story begins with a folk singing group from the 1950s called... The Four Preps. Twenty-six miles across the sea, Santa Catalina is for me. While the story of a folk music group is best to be told by PBS Pledge Drive shows and Christopher Guest mockumentaries, this group in particular had a special member among the quartet who had proven himself to be an avid songwriter. And it was his song and music writing skills that helped him segue into work for writing for TV shows. The young songwriter's name, Glenn Albert Larson. Larson would spend most of his TV career jumping back and forth between NBC, ABC, and CBS, either writing, producing, or creating shows that would range anywhere from cult hit status to minor hit, and on some occasions, even a smash hit or two. In the 1960s, he would make his bones as a writer by penning some of the later episodes of the Quinn Martin hit, The Fugitive. But Larson wouldn't see full prominence until the 70s, when he would pen episodes and even use his folk singing roots to compose the musical scores and theme songs of classics such as The Six Million Dollar Man, Get Christy Love, and McLeod, among many others. Ultimately, Larson would start creating some of his own shows, starting with the critically acclaimed but ill-fated Alias Smith & Jones. Later, he would put together a show involving an ex-cop and an ex-con called Switch that would fare a little more successfully but would only last three years. It wouldn't be until 1976, when Larson was writing episodes of McCloud, that he came up with a character who would ultimately become one of the last gasps of NBC's beloved mystery movie block. Realizing that TV shows about doctors and police were the most popular ones even back then, Larson decided to combine the two to create a show about a medical examiner simply named Quincy. 
The Jack Klugman series would turn out to be Larson's longest-running show by that point, seven seasons. Suddenly, Larson had a higher profile to take on more ambitious projects, the most ambitious of which would wind up taking place in a galaxy far, far away. There's a lot to unpack with Battlestar Galactica, but because it's too good for us to ever cover down here, the short version, even though it and its 1980 sequel show was dismissed as a Star Wars ripoff in the eyes of some, on its own merits, the show and its numerous follow-ups and reboots were perfectly fine and otherwise remembered fondly for what it was. Which brings us to the 1980s, where in the midst of more one-season wonders and TV movies under his belt, Larson would eventually come up with not one, not two, but three long-running hit shows within years of each other. Although technically Donald Belisario gets the bulk of credit for creating it, Larson was co-responsible for the creation of Magnum P.I. in 1980, a show which would eventually become his longest-running hit for eight seasons. It was also 1982's Knight Rider... And 1981's The Fall Guy, whose theme song was actually an unused song Larson wrote while with the four preps. Cause I'm the unknown stuntman, it makes Eastwood look so bad. By that point, all of Larson's work, both smash and minor hits, were enough to make him one of the most in-demand TV producers of the day. And with the success of Knight Rider being one of several shows helping NBC keep itself out of the ratings basement for 1982, the network decided to reach out to Larson once again to see if he had any more tricks up his sleeve. As much as we've been talking about Larson so far, this next idea was actually suggested to him by an NBC executive. So technically, this means that one Mr. Donald R. Boyle gets both the credit and the blame for this idea. A wealthy professor and doctor, Jonathan Chase, has a secret, one that he learned while traveling in the most remote parts of Africa with his father during his youth. The secret being that, when needed, he could transform himself into any animal of his choosing and help foil criminal activity. Only two other people knew of his secret, Dr. Chase's Vietnam War buddy, Tyrone Earl, and an eager young detective, Brooke McKenzie. And since our main character was a man who could transform into any given animal, the name of the show would be obvious. Manimal. Now all we need are the people willing to take on an idea that seemed brilliant on paper, starting with our man in the title role. How many McCorkendales are there? Uh, I think there are only five of us. Really? Yeah. Well, it's a small tribe. It's a small tribe. But a noble... No, there are a lot of people who spell it slightly differently, but our spelling, I think there are only five. Well, you've done Falcon's Gold, a, a genuine old-fashioned adventure. A genuine old-fashioned adventure, absolutely. And you are one of the good guys. I guess. <laughs> I hope. I hope. In the 1970s, a young Englishman was paving his way through a number of British TV shows and movie roles. That man's name was Simon McCorkendale. In 1978, McCorkendale got his big break appearing in the 1978 version of Death on the Nile, a performance that broke out so much that by the 1980s, McCorkendale sought even bigger success in America. While he would become a durable character actor in guest roles on shows like Dynasty, Heart to Heart, and Fantasy Island, among others, McCorkendale did have a bit of a time trying to land a role of equal caliber to what he did for Death on the Nile. By 1983, a role in Jaws 3D was about as close as he could get. And for the first time, the terror of Jaws will not stop at the edge of the screen. In spite of the fact that Jaws 3D was a flop with critics and kind of underperformed by 1983 standards, it still got McCorkendale enough attention so that Glenn Larson cast him in the title role of... Manimal. In the part of McCorkendale's war buddy, Tyrone Earl, two actors were actually cast. One in the pilot episode and one in the remainder of the show's run. We'll talk a little about the one who appeared in the rest of the show's run first, since we always look at the pilot episode anyway. Tie number two was played by Michael D. Roberts, 
Another one of those that-guy-who-was-in-that-thing kind of actors who you'd practically see everywhere in the 70s and 80s and even to this day. You may remember him from such movies and TV shows as Good Times, Beretta, The Ice Pirates, Rain Man, and that episode of Friends where he busts Ross for having sex with one of his students at the college library. We are aware of the problem you're referring to, but as far as increasing security, I'm afraid the library is very understaffed. I, I can't help you. I am very, very sorry. Point is, he's done a lot of things over the years, and he deserves his due. But in the pilot episode, Tyrone Earl would be played by somebody just as durable as Roberts, Glyn Turman, whose resume spans from stage plays in the 60s to his longest-running role as Colonel Bradford Taylor on A Different World, all the way to present day with roles as recently as Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and ABC's Women of the Movement. Finally, in the role of young Detective McKenzie, a plucky ingenue named Melody Anderson, who would take on a number of roles in the 70s, 80s, and part of the 90s before ultimately retiring from acting to become a social worker and advocate on substance abuse and addiction. But before all that, she would appear in a movie with, quite possibly, the greatest movie theme song of all time. No real reason to bring that up. The song kicks ass, it still does kick ass to this day. And I get so little pleasure down here that I'll take what I can get. All three crime fighters would be overseen by one of New York's finest, Police Lieutenant Nick Rivera. Hi, everybody! Hi, Dr. Nick! That's Rivera, not Riviera. Big difference. He would be played by future staple of TV shows and actor's actor, the late Rennie Santoni, best known for his two seasons on Hill Street Blues, as well as several dozen other one-time roles and one-season wonders. The show would find itself in familiar territory. In fact, so familiar the territory that we actually talked about it last time. To recap, of the nine new offerings that NBC had in store for viewers in the 1983 season, Four of the nine were ready to do battle on Friday nights. To put that in perspective, these shows were on opposite various immovable objects, the most immovable of which was in the middle of the peak of dominance. Okay, we promise this is going to be the last time we'll talk about Dallas this season, but we kind of feel the need to emphasize just how destructive a force the show was back in its heyday. Thanks to the momentum of Who Shot JR three years earlier, and right up until the show's infamous dream season in 1985, the show was practically unstoppable. So much so that any TV show that was scheduled opposite might as well have been retitled Land to the Slaughter, even more so if it was a brand new series trying to take it down from the get-go. Suffice to say, even though Glenn Larson had significant clout in the industry, the success of the show wasn't just going to be an uphill climb. Rather, a full vertical scaling up a mountain. September 30th, 1983. Ronald Reagan was the same president that week as he was the week Jennifer Slept Here debuted. Air Supply releases their greatest hits album, and a pair of legs pantyhose costs $2.25. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central, we begin with that shady underbelly of 1980s New York, weaponry sales. $1,000 a piece, packed 10 to a box, times 200 boxes, $2 million. These weapons should have quite an impact on our cause. I'm not interested in your cause, Mr. Saida, only in your money. All the while, a well-dressed man is soon following one of the weapon henchmen. Official police business, follow that cab. You got it, pal, hop in. And as the taxi is being tailed, we get the first of what I'm sure will be a number of transformation sequences that the well-dressed man will be making for years to come. And this would be as good a time as any to acknowledge the work of one Mr. Stan Winston.
While some people want to give credit to the likes of Tom Savini and Ray Harryhausen for their contributions to visual effects, Stan Winston was right up there with his efforts. Up to 1983, he already won two Emmys in 1973 for two diametrically opposed TV movies, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman and Gargoyles. No relation to the Disney show of the same name. After 1983, Winston would rack up four more Oscars for his work with both makeup and visual effects for movies like Aliens, Terminator 2, and... Welcome to Jurassic Park. He's worth mentioning here because Winston had previously worked with Larson on a number of his TV shows in the past, and he was hired to design and create the various transformation sequence that would be taking place on this show. Unfortunately, we can only imagine how much of a budget a show like this had to begin with, because the transformation sequences in question seem okay at first, but after a while, it tends to get a little repetitive. So much so that by the time we get into a few episodes, the transformation sequences are almost entirely ditched in favor of a series of Texas switches, where McCorkendale steps off camera and a random animal comes on camera in his place. But since this is the pilot, we get a full-on transformation, including shots of McCorkendale's hand bubbling like ribs in a pot of chili and sweating profusely like he just ate the same pot. I said keep your eyes on the road. If we lose him, we could be in a lot of trouble. Relax, you know? It's like they're pulling up to that warehouse. You want I should just stop back here? Boy, you got a real bad case of asthma there, haven't you, pal? Now fully transformed, Panther McCorkendale stalks his prey as the henchmen load the truck, one of whom has this strange feeling that he's being watched. The weirdest feeling all night. Like what? Like... Someone's watching us. Spooky. Well, maybe if he spent the weekend at his beach house, he might be a little more relaxed. Do I have to explain every guest star in this? Fine. One of the henchmen is played by Terry Kaiser, who would later go on to play one of the world's busiest dead men until Tupac Shakur came along, Bernie Lomax from the Weekend at Bernie's movies. Oh, Bernie, you animal, you are insatiable. Doesn't anyone realize he's dead? And now that I've explained that, let's get back to the plot. As the henchmen move weapons out, we join two cops on the beat. One's a grizzled veteran. One's a plucky youngster. That truck coming off the pier. Simpson sewing machines. Do you know anybody around here who makes deliveries this time of night? And as the cops tail the truckload of weapons, the drivers of the truck gain a surprise guest. Just stay cool. What have we done that they could know about? As the truck crashes and the young cop goes rogue, the old cop realizes that he's only getting paid sag after a scale for his performance. In other words... Damn, what are you guys doing? Starting your own guerrilla unit? Hey, what the... He's not making it to episode two. The Panther goes on to intimidate one of the henchmen to the point that he gets himself hit by a cab, after which Panther McCorkendale slinks off into the distance, leaving a trail of blood behind, presumably from the car crash that he caused. The young cop reaches the end of the trail where she finds... Please, don't shoot. I'm not armed. My God, there's a wild animal on the loose. You could have been killed. Well, then it seems that I owe you my life. Mc... Corkendale wearing the clothes that he wore before transforming. Oh no 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 no! I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get me to have a logic-based freakout because this is the last show of the season, and it's sort of become a tradition by now for me to have a meltdown of some kind to help cap things off. Well, forget it. I already had a meltdown last time with Jennifer Slept here, and I'm not going to give in to that temptation again, because I am just going to patiently accept the fact that this is a TV show, it's a work of fiction, the budget is probably pretty low to begin with, and I'm just going to accept the fact that a man's ability to transform into any animal that he wishes also comes with a spare wardrobe by Botany 500. I'm accepting it. No more discussion. We're moving on. Just go. 
Get out of here fast. Certainly. See, even the TV show wants me to move on and not ponder whether or not the clothing is part of a person's DNA. So, we're not gonna. Besides, there's more important things to worry about. Like trying to figure out who killed the plucky young cop's partner. And assisting her is her boss, Lieutenant Nick Rivera. Hi, everybody! Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick! Hey, hey, knock that off! There's a guy who does consulting work for us. He's a professor over at NYU, police science department. So? Well, he specializes in the use of animals in police work. If he says you're onto something, then go for it. And if he doesn't? Then you didn't see anything except your partner go down. That's a deal. And so she does at the start of Act Two, at which point she realizes that the man teaching the class is the same man she encountered in the alley who could miraculously conjure up some clothing after transforming himself into a... No, 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 no. <laughs> I... I promised myself I wouldn't question any logic here. Just keep going. Anyway, since this is a TV show where a mystery man is trying to conceal a mystery power, of course the man acts all coy about everything. Tell me, what was it that you hoped that I could do for you? I'd hoped you could tell me something about a panther I saw in the middle of the city last night. In the alley that you just mentioned? Yeah, I chased it in, but I came up empty, even though the alley was a dead end. Then darkness. Shadows create strength. After which, we meet the only person, at least for the moment, who knows about this man's ability to change into animals. Dr. Chase's sidekick and Vietnam War buddy, Ty. Head for the moments, Club. Uh, you really think Drew is gonna show up there after shooting a cop? Why not? Been observing him for weeks, he feels safe there. Yeah, but why stick around at all? Why not just uh, go somewhere and lay low, huh? Because last night I heard specific talk of a very large theft, and Drew wants to be part of it. You're never shooting a cop. We are dealing with a very arrogant group of criminals. What are you gonna do if it shows, huh? I don't know yet. The two men make their way to a nightclub where they discuss their plans to take down one of the shooters. A scene that I would love to play for you, except for one slight hitch. The fact that Michael Jackson's Beat It is playing in the background for the duration of the scene. And even though we tend to play fast and loose with music clips around here, I'm not taking any chances with Jacko's estate. Long story short, Detective McKenzie further prods Manimal about his whereabouts. All the while, all three of our heroes find Bernie Lomax at the club and disprove the line that no one wants to be defeated. We have the man who gunned down my partner sitting right in front of us. There has to be something we can do. Hey, is my lawyer here again? Well, I got a right to a phone call, you know. Let him make his phone call. I'm sorry, Professor. But I guess we don't have enough to make it worth your time. Let's... You got some suggestions? No, I don't think so. Thank you, Lieutenant. Not for the moment. And as we say bye for now to Lieutenant Nick Rivera... Bye-bye, everybody! Zip it! Mackenzie tries to find where the rest of the weapons are being stashed, and Dr. Chase tags along slash forces a will-they-won't-they they rapport with her that I'm sure will fascinate dozens of viewers. Professor? J.C. J.C., when I said thanks again, what I meant was goodbye. Uh, Miss Mackenzie... You said yourself that this was a simple, unofficial stakeout. Now, what could be better than having a consultant along in case Rivera asks any embarrassing questions? Embarrassing questions, such as, why would you want to star in a show like this? Or, was Jaws 3D actually a step up compared to this? Or, did Glenn Larson fly a little too close to the sun with this concept? Questions that I'm sure will be answered as we go along. But for now... Let's repeat the same scene that started the show, with the henchmen loading the trucks and weaponry, and McCorkendale going through his flop sweat routine to transform back into the panther and... Okay, that's a fabric rip. He's clearly transforming into an animal and his clothes are not a part of it. You know what that means. Taking all bets. Five to one odds says that when he's done fighting crime in animal form, he will change back and parts of him will be pixelated. That's five to one odds that once the clothes come off, they stay off. Nothing sexual about this. I just want there to be decent continuity. Place your bets, folks. Place your bets. Okay, betting is closed. And... Must have taken the catnap. Yeah, you could have gotten yourself killed. I told you to stay in that car. Incredible. Not a stitch damaged on him. And he and the lady cop just survived a TV-sized explosion. And when he changes back into a human, his clothes stay on. 
But again, I'm not going to dwell on that. Act 3 deals with the aftermath of the explosion, as Bernie Lomax is sprung from jail and meets up with one of his many bosses inside a limo. A limo that the lady cop is chasing, along with a random falcon. Gee, I wonder who that is. But while we ponder that, here's more of the bad guy's overall plan. In as much as it's bad form to leave town while on bail, I want you to go ahead with Saturday's party. Well, I already got the men lined up. You on the convoy route yet? It comes when the colonel gets his next installment. Any idea what's in those trucks? It's the most important and dangerous money you'll ever earn. After a few more seconds of chasing cars, we then get to meet one of the other bad guys in this story. A well-to-do socialite of indeterminate accent. Something she should be an expert in because she's played by Ursula Andress, a.k.a. Honey Ryder from the first ever James Bond movie, Dr. No. Don't concern yourself with spies. Just line up eight men you can count on. Obviously, I didn't hear you correctly. You want to take on the United States Army with only eight men? They move nerve gas with the lowest possible profile. Nerve gas? So that's what we're after. As both baddies realize that they're being watched, one of them goes after the lady cop for taking pictures of them. When here he comes to save the day! Detective McKenzie at Midtown, right? <laughs> and now I feel dumber for having watched this. And I sat through Super Train. Never mind the fact that the bad guy smacks the lady cop off a bicycle with a briefcase, but then Harvey Birdmanimal swoops in, claws the bad guy, and takes the camera back. <sighs> Which means now I have to Google facts just to be sure of plausibility. How much weight can a falcon carry? According to most ornithology experts, a maximum of four to five pounds. And even so, the most they can do is drag the item that they carry, but not carry it off altogether. The camera in this show seems to have a pretty big lens attached to it, so conservatively speaking, that looks to be a three pound camera, meaning that the idea of a falcon carrying the camera with its talons after assaulting someone is borderline plausible. I'm just glad that the camera's not the size of a coconut. It's a simple question of weight ratios. A five-ounce bird could not carry a one-pound coconut. Well, it doesn't matter. But still not as implausible as the falcon chasing Honey Ryder across town to her townhouse apartment, where, after some PG-rated strip teasing, Birdman changes back to Dr. Chase, again in full wardrobe, to further track her down. After showering for a bit, Honey Ryder gets a call from a third bad guy, but this one seems to be at the top of the chain, as we now get to know somebody simply known as the Colonel. I have mixed news. The shipment you've been waiting for, well, in my estimation, is gonna be quite vulnerable. The idiots ignored me as usual. Sir, short-sightedness is our game. And now, ladies and gentlemen, a joke that I've always wanted to make. Honey Ryder, meet Pussy Galore. But now, back to the plot points, as well as a pair of other points that Cat Manimal is trying to sneak a peek at. I have the decoy route to be taken by an ordinary military convoy, and the actual route will be taken by what will appear to be two civilian trucks. All to our advantage. Well, this is the part you might find difficult. Convoy's being stepped up to tomorrow afternoon. If you want to wait, could be another two years. No, we'll be ready. I'll have Mr. Jordan pick up the final convoy route this evening at Sheikh Caravel in the usual... Meanwhile, we cut back to police headquarters and to Lieutenant Nick Rivera. Hi, everybody! Shut up! So far, we've got 18 shots of a birdie and two shots of people whose faces we can't see. That's all the film they had. I couldn't get any closer. Really? I'm sorry to hear that. I would have enjoyed seeing more pictures of this big guy. He seems to be the only one close enough to know what was coming down. Now, if you will excuse me, I've got some other things to do, like my job. With a seeming dead end in her hands, the lady cop seems frustrated over what to do next. This was a go-between meeting, and this is another one of their trained animals. That attacks its masters. I can't explain what it did or why it did it. 
But the one person who can talk won't. Afterwards, we get a report from the NYPD's forensics lab with a call back to the trail of blood that the lady cop discovered at the start of the show. The blood that, she thought, belonged to Panther Manimal, only to find out... Typo positive? Where's the other one? There is no other one. Both blood samples were from the same man. What about the panther? You didn't give me any panther blood, just human. Jerry, I know what I gave you. I followed those tracks myself, and I'll watch the lab squad take the samples. Brooke, I don't know what you did. I don't know what they did. I can just tell you what I did. I analyzed those two samples you gave me. They both come from the same source, blood type O positive. Human. Faster than you can say, Maury Povich paternity test, both Dr. Chase and Ty discuss their next plan. Really rather special to make our friend Mr. Drew open up. And just how special we talking? The snake. Oh, no. Ty, you will be no danger, I promise. Uh, you won't be there. Then you're going to have to trust me, aren't you? I do. It's the snake I don't trust. And at this point, the same thing could be said about this show. Not because some of the things we're seeing here are about as believable as a copy of the Weekly World News, but because, hate to admit it, once again, I'm not really finding anything in this show that makes it worthy of our standards. Yes, a lot of it is dumb, but does this really deserve to be lumped in among the infamous? Find out as we continue to control the one-man animal population. After the break. Hi, I'm Neil Patrick with savings on home aquariums quality products from Tetra. Welcome to Tetra's wonderful world of tropical fish, featuring quality aquarium products like Whisper Triad Power Filters. Triad provides three-way filtration for the healthiest aquarium. Let Petland discounts bring you into Tetra's world of tropical fish. This week on Telehell's premium content of the dam. Because of the incredible demand for swimsuits, supplies are limited. So order now. Have your credit card ready and call toll-free 1-800-638-4300 or send $19.95 check or money order to Slimsuit, P.O. Box 19020, Las Vegas, Nevada. Your Slimsuit comes complete with the Pounds Off program at no extra charge. So order now to put Slimsuit on to take weight off. 1-800-638-4300. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of the damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now, back to this week's torture. Act 4 begins with Dr. Chase disguised as a waiter trying to get closer to one of the bad guys. But for the sake of comic relief, a customer straight out of the Marx Brothers playbook wants dessert. So let's see if Manimal can walk and chew gum at the same time. Waiter, the cherries jubilee. For two. But of course, madame. Two military trucks disguised as moving vans. How many escorts? Two civilian vehicles. Are you sure about the number of escort vehicles? Positive. Young man. Young man! What are you doing? Well, I've never been so insulted in my life. Well, it's early, eh? No, 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 she didn't actually say that, but let's face it, we're all thinking it. Meanwhile, Ty and presumably Dr. Chase, now transformed into a snake, follow Bernie Lomax to his hotel room, only for the lady cop to tail them. One thing leads to another, and suddenly Bernie experiences the second worst weekend of his life or death. <laughs> a sheik uh, who was just wild about a certain military shipment of uh, nerve gas. I, I, I swear, I don't know nothing about no nerve gas. Sick him, snake. Wait, wait, wait. Just in time for the lady cop to come in and almost ruin everything. Woman, do not let go of that snake on your life, on my life. Oh, yeah. Do you hear me, Professor? Until you come out of there, I'm not letting go of anything. Well, that's very good advice, Miss McKenzie. Oh. 
Upon realizing that the lady cop may have discovered the joys of snake handling as a new religion, she passes out only to pass back in at Dr. Chase's deluxe apartment in the sky, where a passed out woman is the perfect opportunity to do some... flirting? What is this? Oh, it's my robe. It's extremely unwise for anyone unconscious to wear clothing that is tight or binding. Well, I'm not unconscious now. Does that mean that you'd like to give it back? You're really enjoying this, aren't you? Why don't you take this and relax? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but when is it okay to charm somebody when they're passed out? You know what's so cool about Jello Gelatin Pops? They taste just like Jello Gelatin. That doesn't count! Fortunately, the lady cop is wise not to take pills from a guy that she barely knows, so she starts snooping around the place, ultimately leading to a basement library slash animal laboratory, where we finally, about 60% through the pilot no less, find out more about the how and the why of Dr. Chase's ability to put the man in Manimal. Answers to both questions taking place back when Dr. Chase and Ty were fighting in Vietnam. What do you say, Corporal? Fancy for dinner, I know. Chateaubriand. Stop by the Four Seasons. Now look, man. There's no time for one-liners, baby. I mean, uh, you might be cozy back there, but from where I sit, those dudes are looking to have us for dinner. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. Hey, man, you okay? You motherfucker! Man, I ain't gonna ask you how you did that. In fact, I don't even want to know. We're talking about strange cats. Man, you are ridiculous. Come on. Saigon. Shit. What I want is for you to tell me about these journals. These journals have your name on them. My father, an adventurer, a world traveler, a man of unbounded imagination, used to like to dabble quite frequently in fiction. Uh-uh. It won't work, Professor. I told you, I know. I just don't know how. Therein lies the problem. Knowing something and proving it are two entirely different things. You're right. I can't prove anything. But I can call the department and make sure they know about the convoy. All right, go ahead. Make your call. I'll never believe you anyway. And this whole sequence would probably explain why this pilot episode is 90 minutes long. Some would say it's because things needed to be established, even though there's no need for there to be such long-winded explanations. Just say, I can turn into any animal. Well, let's use that as a weapon against crime. Okay, and don't forget to see me in Jaws 3. Saves us time, cuts down padding, people won't tune out in boredom. And how is boredom possible on an action crime show where the big gimmick is that the main character can transform into animals? Regardless, Manimal and the Lady Cop are on the trail again, as another shipment of weapons is on their way out, and the Lady Cop may have gotten a little too close this time. United States Army, ma'am. Is there some kind of problem? Problem? No, no problem. We think there is. Out of the car. Now. Act 5 takes us to what I can only guess is the setting for Journey's Separate Ways music video, where the Lady Cop is being held hostage for knowing too much. Luckily, Bird Manimal is flying overhead. They've taken the nerve gas to the docks, Pier 75. They're going to sail tonight. Then how do we stop a ship? And there is a pitiful limit to what any of God's creatures can accomplish in any form. That's why tonight we're going to need some help. A lot more help than I have on hand in the lab. And what exactly kind of help does our team need? Take it away, Nathaniel from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I go to the zoo. Just kind of wander around the zoo. Yes, Dr. Chase sneaks into the Bronx Zoo to free all the animals that are in there, or at least all the animals that the show's budget could afford, with enough left over for one more transformation sequence, where it seems all the freed animals are looking at him transforming as though they're wondering what their zookeeper fed them today. But that's second to the fact that this is the exact same sequence that we saw at the beginning of the show. Complete with his hand bubbling like a pot of chili, black velvet being placed on his face, and the clothes that he's wearing getting ripped off of himself... again. 
I guess this means either Stan Winston gets paid by the transformation or they really needed a way to pad out the 90 minutes. Regardless, it's this transformation that somehow gets all the zoo animals on his side. Okay. As they all join him in trying to save the lady cop. But before we do, Honey Ryder does one last spot check before shipping off the weapons. We are so close, I can taste the money. And as that's happening, the zoo cats mount their attack. Unfortunately, Dr. Chase must have forgot that some of the weapons being hauled include a supply of nerve gas, which Bernie Lomax tosses in Panther Manimal's direction. In spite of escaping, Panther Manimal passes out from breathing in some of the gas and promptly changes back with a fully intact suit? Uh, okay, okay, okay. I, I, I've been silent on this long enough. I I'm sorry, but if Bruce slash David Banner's clothing can get torn apart every time he turns into the Incredible Hulk and stays torn apart once he changes back, then there is no excuse, rhyme, or reason why this guy's clothing is part of the transformation process. A process which, by the way, may be fully explained in future episodes, but they never ever explain how he's able to be fully clothed post-transformation after his clothes initially come off. Ah, yeah. Well, whenever you notice something like that, a wizard did it. Not good enough. Are fabric swatches part of Manimal's DNA or not? Wizard. No, 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 no. Try again. In fact, I'll give anybody in the world a $50 Amazon gift card if they can explain to me, without saying a wizard did it or it's just a TV show, how the hell Manimal is able to change back into a full suit of clothing after tearing it apart in the transformation process. That's not a joke, by the way. We're really going to do this. Look for a special post on both our Twitter and Facebook feeds at Telehell Podcast. Respond to us with what you think the process is for Manimal to have a fully restored outfit on himself post-transformation. The most creative explanation that doesn't use the words, a wizard did it, or it's just a TV show, will win a $50 Amazon gift card. Or if you listen to us around the world, a gift card code. Be sure to submit your responses before midnight Eastern time on July. July 10th, 2022, and only one submission per person, please. Many will enter, all entries will be read in one of our summer shows, but only one will win it. The question again, how can Manimal have his clothes rip off when transforming, but be fully dressed when he changes back? Enter today, and I'll be reading them this summer. Oh wait, the summer's already here. Damn, this has been a long season. But now, back to the matter of stopping the bad guys. Both Bernie Lomax, Honey Ryder, and the third guy, whose name I never bothered to learn, discover Dr. Chase. Who is this? That's the same guy that I saw with that police chick. I got busted. Just found him lying here. Keep an eye out for the cat. No sign of him here. Looks like he's long gone. In a second, this guy will be too. No. Put him in a cargo hold with the girl. So now, with two out of our three heroes en route to a slow boat to China, the lady cop expresses some regrets, just as Dr. Chase does his impression of Darth Vader being an obscene phone caller one more time. Professor, is that you? Please, let that be you. Oh, it is you. I could kiss you. Oh, maybe later. The two of them make their escape. First, Panther Manimal takes care of Bernie Lomax. Not again. Not again! Followed by the lady cop seriously banking on good luck and timing in order to bust Honey Rider and the other guy. Excuse me. Get her. Maybe this is the last mistake you're ever going to make. 
You were saying... And just like that, game over. No need to call for actual backup, no SWAT teams, no paddy wagons. Hell, not even Ty came by to assist in any way. Just boom, Panther, done. It's taken me 95% of the show, but I think I'm starting to wonder why people didn't take this show seriously. Clearly, the paperwork involved in using a shape-shifting panther to bust weapon smugglers must have cost the NYPD at least one ream. Then again, I just spent the past few minutes questioning the transition process between fur and wardrobe. I think we've reached peak implausibility a long time ago. We wrap things up with more flirtatious banter between Dr. Chase and... You know what, I've, I've called her Lady Cop enough times. Uh, Detective McKenzie. You know that I know. That you can... That I can turn into all manner of wild beasts in the still of the night. Well... And you want to tell the world about it? Yes. Then go ahead. You'll feel better. No, because... Uh... I'll never believe you. Now, if you were to admit that... No. Out of the question. I didn't think so. <laughs> if you allow your imagination to run free. Just think of us. Together. Working. Yes. Yes, you and me, together, the possibilities are endless. You have no idea how strongly I'm resisting the urge to make bestiality jokes right now. And besides, don't we have one more loose end to tie up? We still haven't caught the colonel. Not a problem. He'll confess. What makes you so sure? Trust me. Why? Because I'm good with animals. Which brings us to the payoff for this show, as well as a reward to that rare intersection of people on the Venn diagram who happen to have watched both this show and Jaws 3 at the same time. Disregarding the fact that a shark could never survive a chlorinated pool, and the implication that Dr. Chase could change his name from Manimal to Cannibal, I have to admit that that was one brief glimmer of cleverness. Too bad that one brief glimmer doesn't make up for the 95% of implausibility this show had. So, where does Manimal fit in on the evolutionary scale of Telehell? It's a case of survival of the fittest on the Nine Circles. Manimal. Limbo. Lust. Gluttony. Greed. Wrath. Heresy. Violence. Fraud. Treachery. The easy thing to say is that this is a typical action crime show with a not-so-typical gimmick, and that those shows are almost guaranteed to have PG-rated violence every week, so at least that's a given. In the case of this particular program, Dr. Chase uses more than enough animal magnetism to sneak a peek under Ursula Andress's bathrobe, plus a fair share of flirting with the lady cop that may or may not imply some primetime bestiality. So to be safe, let's mark this one for lust, too. We also mentioned this a few weeks ago in one of our countdown shows, but there's a fine line between bad and dumb and that both of them are not necessarily synonymous with each other. That being said, I almost find it amazing that they could take a concept as unique as a man transforming into any animal that he wants and make it look as boring as an episode of Wall Street Week. Then again, this was 1983, and even if you had a major TV network and a major studio backing you up, there's only so much that can be done with a weekly TV budget, especially if you're hiring an Emmy and future Oscar winner for your transformation sequences. Stan Winston must have cost Glenn Larson a penny or two, and when it comes to success, sometimes you have to be a little greedy to get the right results. But the bigger issue, once again, is the notion of whether or not this show is truly as bad as its reputation lets on. TV Guide placed it as number 15 on their 2002 list of the 50 worst TV shows of all time. But not unlike some of the other entries on the list, maybe the show was actually ahead of its time. 
But alas, the ratings for both that show and any other show NBC aired on a Friday night in 1983 wound up as bottom feeders in the great Nielsen rating food chain, as Manimal would be canceled once and for all as the 90th ranked TV show in the country. And normally, this would be where the story of the show would end. But believe it or not, Manimal would make a one-time only reappearance 16 years later on another cult classic creation of Glenn Larson's. Show of hands, how many of you remember a show called Nightman? Not that Nightman. This was a show that ran in syndication in the late 90s. There you go. This is yet another misstep Marvel Studios made well before Iron Man came along and set them on the right path. But yes, Nightman was a Marvel superhero that I wish I had the time to open can upon can of worms for. The show only lasted two years, but not unlike most of Glenn Larson's catalog, it too would be remembered with a bit of a cult status. And nowhere would that status become more evident than in the sixth episode of the second season, when Simon McCorkendale would reprise his role as Dr. Jonathan Chase in a plot involving Jack the Ripper traveling through time to continue his killing spree. You heard me. Unfortunately, even though this show is available for free on YouTube, it's only available as a DMCA copy. Translation, I can't hack up the audio for that one without being a little extra clever. But take my word for it when I say that time has been much friendlier to Manimal here than it was in 1983, thanks in large part to late 90s special effects making the transition from man to animal more plausible, even though he can still change back wearing a suit. Seriously, I want some answers on that. But getting back to the series proper, Everything we mentioned is second to the fact that on Manimal's eventual DVD set released in 2015, series creator Glenn Larson gave what would turn out to be his final interview before passing away in 2014. And it's during this interview that he expressed both regret over the show's initial run, but also hoped that the show's cult following could lead to more in the future. And on that note, I'm going to let the man himself have the next to last word. The lineage of this show is uh, quite different than any other I've ever had, and especially when it comes to a cancellation. Uh, this is a show that um, found an audience that w went for all practical purposes uh, invisible because again, it, it premiered against uh, Dallas which would run against it every week. So our best foot forward to explain everything was gone. However, there was a core audience out there because a good friend of mine, he's a, a multimillionaire. His daughter could have had anything she wanted for her birthday. And she wanted the episodes of Manimal. And he said, I've got to get these for her or she'll be heartbroken. I said, you know, where was she or a lot of them like her when we needed them? Because little girls like animals a lot. So maybe there was something there. And then later, uh, after that brief uh, episode on uh, or, or appearance on NBC, the French uh, network, or one of them, came to us and said they would like to start the show over in France, made by French crews for the French audience entirely. And uh, I don't know what broke down mechanically or business-wise in, in, in that. So what does it mean? But again, it was the entire French uh, public was enamored of a show that we only got to make eight of here, and uh, I never had that experience before. They talk about resurrecting lots of shows, and uh, once in a while it, it happens. Um, there's more, it's more likely that this show will have a shot at the big screen before coming, then coming back to television. It was not an auspicious launch, because if you don't get that big sampling on a movie, when you have a, you know, a movie rather than a one-hour episode, and these were the good days when you shot longer, the pilots were longer. I think we made a good, a good movie. A lot of people didn't get to see it, and that's, uh, that's the sadness of it. Unfortunately, as of press time, any chance of there being a new and improved Manimal in the works are next to nothing. 
And even though we take their information with the smallest grains of salt around here, IMDB saying that supposedly a new mammal is quote-unquote in development, even though nobody is attached to it, makes all those chances even slimmer. So until and unless something winds up happening that actually lights fires under people's asses, Manimal's TV fade is dead and buried for certain. But Manimal's fade in any other media will remain in a perpetual state of limbo. But as long as the show is still remembered fondly, no matter how dumb or implausible it may be, maybe it doesn't need anything else to validate itself. Manimal earns four out of nine circles of telehell. At the end of the day, this was yet another show that may have unfairly earned its reputation as one of the worst, not unlike a handful of shows that we've covered down here so far these past four seasons. But that's how history can be sometimes. Cruel the moment it happens, but kinder as the years go by. I'm not saying Manimal should have won a raft of Emmy Awards and ran for 20 years, but as dumb as the show was, people watch TV more for escapism than anything else. To put things in perspective, even though the show finished 90th of all the shows that aired on TV that year, it still managed to pull in a 10.1 rating on average, which by today's standards seems pretty gargantuan. But remember, this was a time when there was less choices of what to watch, and also a time when the network that aired the show was still clawing its way out of oblivion. Which brings us to one final coda about NBC's Be There season in general. You can be anything you want to be there. Somewhere on YouTube, there's a 20-minute presentation made by then-network advertising chief Steve Somer, touting the versatility of the Be There campaign. He did this by mentioning that some aspects of it were meant to promote the network's existing successes, going so far as to showcase a series of ads where you couldn't be there when younger versions of popular NBC characters had a tough time growing up. But you could be there now that they're more grown up and more sure of their place in life and on the TV dial. Perhaps if the network decided to use those same commercials towards those new offerings instead of what already existed, perhaps a handful of the nine shows that premiered that season might have stood a chance for renewal the following year. Ultimately, though, the ship had sailed, and all of NBC's existing successes, plus a few mid-season replacements, translated to a jumping-off point for the following season. The rest is history. By 1984, the peacock's plumage stopped molting, and the bird was able to strut with confidence once again, attaining its status as the number one network on television for the first time in a long time, a prosperity it would go on to enjoy for the next 20 years, until sinister forces almost brought things down for the peacock once and for all. Conan um, has said that he, he doesn't want his show to be on at 12.05, and if, if he can't be on at 11.35, uh, a half hour uh, difference that he can't accept and he's going to, uh, he's gonna move on. We're, we're in those conversations to uh, release him, and he'll, he'll leave, and, and we'll have the lineup that you just talked about. But that's another story. And on that note, Thank merciful Satan, we are done. That's a wrap on season four. And three, two, one. Ah, they did change the ringtone. I was starting to think they didn't listen to me down there. Yo! Your mode of transportation's here, honey. And what kind of fuel-belching, gas-guzzling, factory-recalled vehicle do you have for me this time? As usual, you're jumping to conclusions. Unfortunately, because of the price of fuel up on the surface these days, you're gonna need something a little more, uh, organic to get down here. What do you mean, because of the price of fuel? I thought we control the gas prices. Hell, OPEC. Wall Street? Same difference. Either way, not only is it hard to afford gas right now, but it'd also be a little too stupid to have any down here. You know, because the police is on fire all the time, and it'd just be a waste anyway. Eh, ask a stupid question. Okay, 
So, how am I coming down, and what exactly did you mean by organic? Well, do you remember that song by the music group Cake? Well, obviously I know I'm going the distance. It takes me a while to get down there, you know. Not that one. Am I traveling in a short skirt and a long jacket? Think harder. Let's see. Cake songs, cake songs. Let Me Go, Frank Sinatra, Never There, Rock and Roll Lifestyle, Comfort Eagle, Love You Madly, Sick of You, Sinking Ship, Daria. I'm not following you. Well, let me give you a hint. The Grave Digger puts on the forceps, the Stonemason does all the work, the Barber can give you a haircut, and the Carpenter can take you out to lunch. Oh, no, you don't mean... That's right, honey. Sheep go to the place upstairs, goats go right outside your office. You want me to take a goat downstairs? Of course not. <laughs> that would take too long. The boss sent an entire herd of them to drag you and the sled you'll come in on. But why goats? Because you just did an episode about a guy who could transform into animals. And... As always, hell wouldn't be hell without a dash of irony. I don't know a damn thing about herding goats. How the here am I supposed to get them to move? Relax. There's a couple months worth of goat feed in your sled, as well as instructions on how to take care of an entire herd of 1,000. A thousand? You want to get there on time, don't ya? Well, clearly I have no choice. When do you need me down there? No specific date this time. We all know how stubborn goats can be, so try to make it down before, um, the end of summer. Also, if any of the goats perish on your way down, save the wool so we can make deals with high-end fashion labels on Angora sweaters. Also, save the meat. We're trying to finalize a deal with Jack in the Box. Long story. Ew. Well, better start hitting the trail. Canceling. Okay, she said there were instructions in the sled. Where are they? To start up the herd, take the reins of the sled, whip vigorously one time, and yell, Move out. Okay. Move out! Wait, there's more instructions. Uh, if the goats don't move right away, use the emergency speed-up device underneath the sled. To use emergency speed-up device, apply glowing end to goat's rear end, and we promise the herd will move. Glowing end? season, everybody! Although these last few minutes are nothing more than an elaborate production piece, we do feel the need to kinda sorta remind you that no goats were harmed during the making of this podcast. The part of the devil's secretary was played by Joan Bishop. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. 
All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. This may be the end of our current season, but that doesn't mean we're going away for the summer. Tune in throughout the summer to hear free versions of stuff that we've been playing on our Patreon feed all year long. And if you still want to hear the shows on Patreon, you know where to find us. Patreon.com slash Podcast. And don't forget to enter our special contest that we announced earlier in this episode. As we drop this episode on Twitter and on Facebook, we're going to ask the question once again, how does Dr. Jonathan Chase manage to change himself back into a fully suited man after transforming into an animal? The best response is going to get a $50 Amazon gift card or gift code. And other people are going to get other prizes depending on how creative their entries will be. Again, that's on Twitter and Facebook at Telehell Podcast. Until we see you in October of 2022, have a bitchin' summer, everybody. Yeehaw! Everybody!